Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Last week, Jeremy brought us back to our series, One Big Story, in which we're going cover to cover in the Bible this year for the purpose of helping us connect the dots to the one big story of the Bible. And along the way, dispel widespread misconceptions of what the Bible actually teaches that run rampant in our culture today, even among many in the church. We want to know God and his word more fully and accurately. So prior to Jeremy sharing, we had left off with Joshua and the Israelites having finally entered the promised land and winning the battle of Jericho. So after Joshua, the story continues as a few good men and women called judges lead Israel for the next 325 years. Despite having some great leaders, Israel falls into this continual pattern of spiritual compromise after each of these leaders leaves the scene. And then enters Ruth, a young Moabite woman whom we talked about in detail last December in the Mothers of Jesus series. A key point about Ruth, you may remember, is we see a foreign woman in her become part of the lineage of King David, clearly challenging the misbelief among some Israelites that God was the exclusive property of Israel. I mean, from the very beginning and all throughout Scripture, we see God has a desire to bring his redemption to all people. Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. Prior to David's birth, Israel is being led by a godly prophet and a judge named Samuel. He was a child miraculously born out of a struggle and a promise, who became a leader who called the people back to God. It was under Samuel the people get back the Ark of the Covenant that had been taken by the Philistines during one of the times when Israel was so unfaithful to God. The Ark represented the very presence of the one true God. And that's why when the Philistines placed the Ark next to the statue of their god Dagon as a way to mock the Israelites and Israelites' God, their idol crashed to the ground, smashing its face and arms. The Philistines were also afflicted with tumors, so after seven months of pure misery, they sent the ark back to Israel, where it was kept in a border town for 20 years. During this time, Samuel kept insisting the Israelites stop worshiping pagan deities and return to the true God, their true king. But Israel thought having a man as a king like everybody else around them would solve their problems. And this is where Jeremy brought us to. He shared how Saul was the first king of Israel, a man who, whose personal issues with jealousy and impatience and disobedience to God resulted in Saul taking things into his own hands. And that led to the failure to follow God and the failure as king. Jeremy shared how David, God's choice of a successor, was better prepared to be king because he practiced believing in and remembering the faithfulness of God. We see his passion and faithfulness clearly in the return of the ark back to Israel. Second Samuel 6, David dances rather wildly in front of the ark as it's coming into Jerusalem. When he got, got, gets home, his wife, Michael, King Saul's daughter, says in disgust how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. And David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. Ouch. A bit of metal in-law dig going on there. He goes on, God appointed me as the leader of Israel, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. David relentlessly put God first, and God blessed David and Israel. Now, David certainly wasn't perfect. In our series, The Mothers of Jesus, we also talked about Bathsheba, how David sinned by sleeping with another man's wife and then having her husband killed in battle. David was confronted by another prophet, Nathan, and he repented. 
while his repentance was real, there were still consequences that we see lived out in the continued struggle in David's family. But overall, David kept a heart toward God. You could take everything else away from David, but God remained solid in his life. In David's reign, Israel's borders were secured, allowing a peaceful and prosperous transfer of the kingdom to Solomon, the son he had with Bathsheba. Today, we want to focus on one of the key things Solomon did for Israel and how this vividly relates to us today. David had wanted to build the temple to God, but God wanted to have a man of peace, not a man of war, construct the temple. David had shed way too much blood. So recognizing God would have David's son construct the temple, David made great efforts to plan and gather lavish materials for the future temple. What we see in young Solomon is one who had a love for God and a tender, willing heart to obey God, which was engendered by his respect for David's faithfulness to God. We see a glimpse of this early in Solomon's reign as king. In, second, in 1 Kings 3, it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love. And then he goes on to talk of God's love to David and how it's now loving towards him. And then he says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go in and come out. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. Solomon ask, is asking for wisdom. that I may dis- And then he goes on and says, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself, understand and discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall ever arise after you. See, God is saying, I will make you the wisest man to live. I give you also what I have not, what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So Solomon's wisdom and breadth of understanding was greater than anyone. Next to Jesus, more than Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, anybody you can think of. Solomon's name is synonymous with wisdom, partly due to his 3,000 Proverbs, many of which are recorded in the biblical book of Proverbs, offering wisdom and insight on many of life's issues. I mean, what it means to fear God, how to have a God-honoring relationship, how to wisely handle finances, how to be wise in work and in life in general. He was wiser than anyone, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations with people coming from everywhere to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Solomon had it all. Wisdom, wealth, power, and influence. Solomon begins building the temple of God. It was a building to celebrate the creator of all that exists a place God himself would say that his presence would rest in a special, powerful way. It was such a wonder that the Queen of Sheba gave glory to God because of it. Now, the footprint of the temple is rather modest, about 90 by 30 feet, surrounded by a large walled courtyard. As far as inside square footage, many, even most houses in New Albany and Westerville are larger than the temple building by itself, though the peak of its roof was 160 feet high, more than three times the height of Quest's building. It was spectacular in its beauty and historic significance. So the construction took seven years, 180,000 laborers along with 4,000 supervisors. 
The floor plan of Solomon's temple followed the pattern of the tabernacle Moses had built during the Israelites' wilderness journey. With walls made of marble six to eight feet thick, two bronze pillars led to the portico, which then led to the holy place built with cedar and pine and juniper and olive wood and the most holy place, most of it lay overlaid in gold. According to First Chronicles, Solomon used more than 4,000 tons of gold and 40,000 tons of silver on the walls and the columns and in the furnishings. I mean, all the metalwork was done by the greatest artists of the day. The price of what he used in today's value would be more than $232 trillion in raw precious metals. The U.S. national debt is one-tenth the value of the precious metals in Solomon's temple. Think about that. Add to that the fact that there, in the building that was made out of marble and granite and then had onyx and rubies and emeralds decoratively embedded in the walls and the pillars. This temple had major bling power. When the temple of the Lord was finished, King Solomon brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold furnishings. So picture this. The temple's all done. The dedication ceremony for that, Solomon summoned all the leaders of Israel to bring up the Ark of the Covenant to the temple with all the Israelites coming together for worship and a festival to God. It says so many sheep and cattle were sacrificed that they could not be numbered and recorded. The musicians played and they sang, he is good, his love endures forever. And then the most awesome part happened, more awesome than all the bling. The temple was filled with the glory of God appearing as a thick luminescent cloud descending upon it. First Kings tells us, 8 tells us the cloud was so thick and the glory was so bright, the priests had to leave the temple. And then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, it says, in the presence of the altar of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And Solomon goes on in a long prayer. Allow me to highlight just two things Solomon prays. It says, first, Solomon prays asking for God to protect Israel from all manner of harm and to greatly bless them. And then second, he prays in verse 41, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Again, reemphasizing God is for all people, desiring that all would come to know and follow him, not just for the Israelites or those who are part of the church. The temple was supposed to be a place of refuge for Israel and a place where the foreigner could come and find salvation. This is the height of Israel's glory. Now, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles parallel each other. They're just different written accounts of the same time period. The parallel passage for First Kings 8 is Second Chronicles 7. It describes the same event, noting this celebration continued for over a week. And then it goes further, saying, Afterward, God appeared to Solomon in the night, saying to him, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour land or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And then God goes on to promise and warn Solomon if he's diligently faithful to God, his throne will be established for coming generations. But if not, then pain and division will come to Israel because of him. Solomon gets this great promise with clear guidelines on what to do and what not to do. We think it's simple. Stay the course, Solomon. You're a smart man. But Solomon was faced with 
The accolades of admirers, visitors from everywhere came to meet this famous, wisest of all kings. And the Bible tells us again about the Queen of Sheba came to test Solomon with hard questions. He answers, answers all of her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. And when the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom Solomon had, the palace he had built, the burnt offerings at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed and saying, all the reports of you were not even half of what I see. And she praised God at how powerful and good he was to Solomon and Israel. I mean, Solomon had it all, but he didn't stay faithful in the essentials. He departed from the ways of God. He married women from other nations who brought their pagan worship into his home. Now, it's easy for us to remove ourselves and think, how stupid, but I, I wouldn't do that. I, I don't, and we don't have shrines to our false gods set up in our house. I, I, we think I didn't take a false god in my pocket and bring it to work, but but realize that the worship of other gods in those days was about more than just religion. For them, these gods promised life and survival. False gods in the ancient world of that time were called Baals. And each one was tied to specific things like the people wanted. There was the Baal of fertility or the Baal of good health. Each career field had its own Baal. There was the Baal of rain and of the harvest called the Baal of hay. The nearby Greeks had a gods and goddesses for every sphere of life. Artemis and Diana, the goddess of prosperity and money. Athena was the, was the goddess of intelligence, political prowess. So if you want to get good grades, worship Athena. Nike was the goddess of victory, worshipped by athletes and warriors to help them run faster, jump higher, and soar above the competition, just like Mike, just like Air Jordan. Aphrodite was the goddess of sexuality and beauty. People worshipped her by having sex with prostitutes in the temples. So by Solomon allowing these other gods into his home and the city, people who grew impatient waiting on God would often turn to these other false gods. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever grown tired of waiting for God to bring promotion or recognition or success to you in your work or a relationship and you turned to th taking things into your own hands? Over the years, I've been intrigued by how many people say, God led me to this job. And, and when it immediately becomes hard and doesn't really go well as they wish, they quickly switch and jump ship rather than waiting on God and growing in grace. We say it's hard to know when to wait and when to take action. But what I think many, if not most of us tend to do is we forget to turn to God and before we, before we make decisions. Think about your decisions. Do you turn to God and wait and gain a sense of direction and peace about that direction? Or do you do things more in your own effort. Israel eventually chose idols and so did Solomon. And because of that, we see the nation of Israel divided at Solomon's death into the northern kingdom, which would be called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which would be called Judah, with the two often warring against each other and the sin in both kingdoms getting worse and worse and worse with a few short-lived times of reform. Eventually, we see Israel, the northern kingdom, being judged because of persistent, unrepentant, rampant sin and being sent out of the promised land and, and, and exiled in 722 B.C. The southern tribes are taken into captivity in 586 B.C. We'll cover this more in later messages. The point here is before the southern tribes, including Jerusalem, were taken, about 300 years after Solomon, the prophet Ezekiel has this vision about the temple of Solomon before it's destroyed. The vision is almost two chapters long in Ezekiel 10 and 12. It's full of complex imagery, so allow me to summarize one of the main points so we don't get lost in the images and the length of words. Because of Judah's wickedness, particularly among the leaders, God is bringing judgment. It specifically says in this Ezekiel passage, through judgment, God's intent is to bring the people back to him, to make them aware of their need for him and his love for them. But it also depicts through the vision the departure of the spirit of the Lord from the temple. 
you see in the vision the glory of God leaving Israel, first by God's presence moving from the inner temple to the threshold of the door to the temple and then to the east gate of the temple and then out of Jerusalem up to the top of the mountain outside of the east gate. So did the glory and the presence of God depart from Israel forever? No. God had already determined to bring salvation to everyone. He had made unconditional promises to Abraham and David that even Israel's failures would not stop him from keeping his promises. But for a season, the presence of God was gone, which makes this next point so very awesome. When we jump all the way to Luke in the New Testament, we see Jesus' final ride into Jerusalem that we celebrate every year on Palm Sunday, which was three weeks ago. This whole Palm Sunday grand entrance into Jerusalem by Jesus and his disciples starts out at the top of the same mountain that Ezekiel saw the departing glory of God go up. It is at the top of this mountain where Jesus got on a donkey and rode back into Jerusalem through the east gate, the same gate Ezekiel saw the glory of God depart through. And then Jesus came straight into the temple courtyard, the courtyard called the temple, the court of the Gentiles, where he took out a whip and cleansed it, driving out the money changers who were buying and selling in the temple. And then from the threshold of the temple, Jesus says this in Luke 19, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus is saying this was supposed to be a place where foreigners from other nations find hope and meet with God. Instead, you have turned it into a place to make money for yourselves. So Jesus took out a whip and cleansed the temple of his day, of his day restoring it to its original purpose. And then he offered himself as a sacrifice, not the 142,000 or more animals Solomon did. Jesus gave himself. No animal blood could ever take away sin and cleanse the heart. Only Jesus' blood can do that. Jesus' blood would do what no temple and no sacrifice could ever do. If only we would choose to seek and follow God, not giving ourselves to idols. J.D. Greer says it this way. He says, The glory of God, Ezekiel predicted, would no longer be found in the beautiful place, the temple, but in a beautiful person, Jesus. And anyone who comes to him by faith from any nation asking for forgiveness and healing for their sin will receive it. From God's promises to Solomon that if his people will pray to Ezekiel's picture of the Spirit of God leaving the temple and the promises of God, God's return to Jesus returning down that same mountain to the house of prayer, bringing the presence of God back, not to a temple made of stone, but to the temple made of human flesh. You and I, everyone who would receive him becomes the temple of God. The story of the Bible is one big story that ties together in a beautiful story of God's love and mercy toward us all. Therefore, getting back to Solomon, we can pray all the promises given to Solomon to Israel about the temple because they apply to us. And it's only better for us now because of what Jesus did and how we now have the Holy Spirit, God's presence living in each of us who follow him. So our landing point for today is our response to God's promise given to Solomon about the dedication of the temple. First Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If my people, because this promise is for us today, God is saying, I want my people to rise up and not sit on the sidelines, to not just be bystanders who read the headlines. I want my church to step forward in faith, to rise up and believe in God for healing and a spiritual awakening today in our lives and in our world. God wants to wake us up to the reality that he is really here among us and he is for us. What seemed to derail Solomon from saying true to God is a tendency we all face. It's complacency. 
we discover some insight into Solomon and his struggle with complacency at the end of his life in the book he wrote called Ecclesiastes. Most of Ecclesiastes is written in a way that it's like looking back in the rearview mirror of life. Solomon recognized the error of his ways and writes an honest account of his struggles and shallow life apart from God. It's probably the most brutal and painful and helpful book on helping us remember that nothing rivals a life simply lived in obedience to God. Solomon summarizes his look back on his life apart from God by saying in Ecclesiastes 1-2, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Do you ever feel that way? At the end of binge watching something you were looking forward to, wanting to escape life for a while, you leave that experience with the feeling, well, that was worthless. I just wasted part of my life. Do you ever look back and see how hard you worked for something? Maybe you even got what you were working for and you have this empty feeling that it was worthless in the grand scheme of things. Bored and burned out at the end of his life, Solomon summed up his great life experiment with this one word that appears 37 times in 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. The book opens and closes with the Hebrew word hebel. In some places it is translated meaningless. Other places it is translated vanity or emptiness. Elsewhere in scripture it is translated through a picture as a vapor that is wispy, fleeting, elusive, and quickly passing like your breath on a cold day. Something you see and then it's gone. One of the most pointed things Solomon's thoughts reveal is life must be pursued with a sense of urgency because the days between birth and death pass like your breath in the air on a cold day or a fleeting shadow. Life is fleeting and complex and life complacency can easily sneak in. It's this tendency to check out or numb ourselves to avoid looking at pending trouble or controversy or staying engaged with life. I mean, life has so many problems. We just wanna pull back, binge Netflix, be entertained, live life passively, this if God gave to Solomon is the same if he is giving to each of us. Our answer to this if can determine whether we live complacent or engaged. God is asking us, will you pray and ask me to change things? Will you move off the sidelines and believe me to move in your life and your friends' lives and your work? Will you believe me to move in this nation, including in our government and media? Instead of zoning out, we decide to pray and not fall into feeling too bombarded with too many problems. We reject passivity and lean into the promise that God wants to move in our world through you and I and us together, his church. When we are faced with a need, we can either trust God in prayer or we can turn to idols. Now, trusting in idols looks like I'm not sure God is going to provide for my needs, so I'm going to hoard all my money and toilet paper and refuse to be generous, overwork and worry all the time. I'm not sure God cares about the next steps in my life, so I won't give him my career or job opportunities. I'm just going to take control of where I go and what I want to do, and I'll trust in my wisdom and strength to get me through in life. See, so whenever we turn to something other than God to trust him, that's our idol. When we trust in God, it looks more like this. I can trust that God is moving even when I can't see it. I can wait knowing that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We don't know and may never know all the things God is doing around us. John Piper says it this way, he says, at any moment God is doing around 10,000 things in your life and you are aware of only about three of them. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If, if we have a choice, that choice is to live with complacency 
thinking it's all too big, it's too much for me, I'd rather spend my life distracting myself. Or maybe you choose to, to, like Solomon, to trust your own intelligence and wisdom more than God's, pursuing life's pleasures and this life's measures of success only to come to the end of your life and realize it's all a vapor, a breath on a cold day, a fleeting shadow, vain, empty, and meaningless. Or the other option is you choose to trust in God, that he's actively engaged in moving in our world. Because of that, you choose to pray, take ownership for your sin and the sin of people around us and ask God to move in forgiveness and healing and deliverance and restoration and salvation. God says, if my people will pray, so let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you'd help us each day to be both more aware of your greatness and your power and your love for us and also more aware of our own sin and the sin of people around us and that you would work through us as we pray And as we repent for our own sin and the sin of our nation, the sin of our world, that you would pour yourself out in healing, in salvation, in restoration, in goodness, in prosperity for the poor, that the poor would be lifted out of, out of their troubles. Lord, that you would bless us in our relationships in every possible way that we would run into and experience your blessings because we choose to respond to that if with prayer and trusting you to come and do your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, would you allow yourself to join with Daniel and Tiana as they lead us in a song of worship declaring our trust in God. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.